Tonight I'm excited to land the plane on this series. I have enjoyed this study as we've looked in the book of Revelation. I want to invite you to turn there with me tonight, Revelation uh, chapter 3. going to pick it up uh, in verse uh, 7 here, and uh, rather 14 I should say, as we look at the final church, the final of seven churches. We've looked at letters from the risen Christ as he appeared to the Apostle John on the island of Patmos, uh, as he was exiled there by the Roman Emperor Domitian, sentenced to hard labor uh, for daring preach Christ, and that risen Savior appears to John and says, John, I want you to take a letter, take seven letters, and you're going to send these out to the churches that comprise my following on this, on this earth. And these are real churches. They existed in John's day. But the content of these letters is not just for them. There are beneficial things that uh, are for churches all across time, including this church right here in Burlington, North Carolina. And so we have looked at six churches so far. We looked at Ephesus, which is the church that left its first love. We looked at, uh, we looked at the church of, of Ephesus, and then we looked at the church of Smyrna, which was purified through persecution. They grew close to the Lord, even though they were uh, facing trials. Uh, they were facing severe suffering. And then we looked at Pergamum, which became a compromised church. They had allowed idolatry in their midst, and they started to explore worldliness. And then we saw Thyatira. This is a church that was utterly corrupted because that worldliness just took root and just really made this a poisonous place. We then saw a church called Sardis, and there was nothing good to say about that church. It was a dead church. And then just last week, we looked at Philadelphia. Philadelphia, the faithful church to whom Christ says, I will open doors to you that no one will shut. And that brings us to tonight. And we look at this church in a city called Laodicea. And Laodicea is the furthest east of the seven cities. It's about 45 miles from Philadelphia that we studied last week. It was founded in the uh, 3rd century by the Seleucid king Antiochus II. He founded this city and he named it after his wife. His wife's name was Laodicea and so he named this city after her. And then he, uh, you know, he, he divorced her. And so, uh, you know, how, how's that? You, you rule in a city that you name for your wife that you just kicked to the curb. And so... Here this uh, name stuck, apparently, and this city was known for three things. They were known, first of all, for gold. It was a commercial center. It was a banking capital, very wealthy town, a lot of industry. In fact, it was uh, under Roman rule in John's day. There was an event where there was a terrible earthquake. Much of the city was destroyed, and the state offered funds, offered as they do today. There were uh, disaster relief funds offered by the Roman government. This city was so wealthy, they said, no thanks. We're going to take care of it ourselves. That's how wealthy, how well-off, how affluent they were. The second thing they were known for, not only gold, but garments. We've talked about a lot of textiles-laden cities lately. This was one of them. They had a particular black, soft wool that they produced there. And so they were very proud of that. They exported that locally and, uh, and abroad. And then third, they were known for medicinal products. They had a center of healing in this city. You might recall when we studied Pergamum, that was a city that was known for a temple uh, that uh, was dedicated to the god of healing, a god named Asclepius. 
And uh, it was, uh, had a, some association with a serpent, and that's where the medical symbol of the pole with the serpent wrapped around it came from. Well, there was a temple to Asclepius right here in this town, in Laodicea. And so they had a center devoted to healing, and they had um, medicinal practitioners there, and they developed some products, and what they were really known for was an eye salve that one would acquire if they had an eye ailment. And so those were the main industries of Laodicea. Commerce, cloth, and medicinal products, this ISAV in particular. And this church we see mentioned in the book of Colossians. If you've ever read Colossians, you'll see the church at Laodicea mentioned there. Uh, it was not far from Colossae. And in fact, uh, the same guy that founded the church in Colossae founded the church in Laodicea, a guy by the name of Epaphras. And Paul writes in Colossians 4.16, he says, When this letter has been read among you, have them also read this letter in the church of the Laodiceans. And see to it that you read the letter from the Laodiceans. And people read that and they go, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. There's another letter out there by Paul? Are you kidding me? There's a lost letter? You telling me that there's more to the canon of Scripture? Why, there, there should be a book called Laodiceans in our Bible? Well, calm down. It's probably the same book as as the book to the Ephesians, because that's how this all worked. The letters of Paul would circulate from church to church to church, and uh, Laodicea probably got that letter from Ephesus, and they were circulating it on, and it was coming to Colossae. And so what that tells us is this was a connected church. They were networked. They were in contact with the apostles. And so they were grounded. They were affluent. They were self-sufficient. They were successful. They were stately. But in your notes, this church, this Last of seven churches had no commendation from the Lord. He has nothing good to say to them. We will not read, you've done this well. We will not read, I know your good deeds. We will not read uh, anything of merit that the Lord says to them based on what they've done. They simply get a condemnation and a warning and some advice. Yikes. So we've got something to observe about them because we've mentioned that every church in Revelation in these early chapters is really representative of an era in church history. And this one's no different. And being as this is the last church mentioned, what does that tell you? That tells you that this has something to do with the age in which we live. And so we better pay special attention here. There's an awareness that we need as we read Christ's words to this church. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, I ask your blessing upon our final study, uh, our final church, God, as we look at this uh, example of lukewarmness, God. And may we extract from this what you would have us to learn. Uh, may we apply the lesson that you would have us apply. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so in this letter, as with all the letters, Christ is going to start by introducing himself. And so we're going to begin here in your notes with the Lord's character. We, we see his character unfold in every letter introduction, which highlights an aspect, uh, uh, an attribute of Christ that is really relevant to the church to whom the letter is addressed. And he gets started here in verse 14. It says, And to the angel of the church, that would be the pastor, the pastor in Laodicea, write the words of the amen. The words of the amen, all right? He is referring to himself as the amen. Why would he call himself the amen? 
Well, this in your notes means that he is the confirmation of Old Testament promises. Amen is a Hebrew word. It means so be it. So it is. All right, when do we say amen? We say it at the end of a prayer, don't we? It's a confirmation. It's an agreement with God. Christ is the amen. He is the fulfillment and the confirmation of all the Old Testament promises. And we see Paul uh, state that in 2 Corinthians 1.20. He says, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for uh, his glory. When we say amen, uh, that is intended to, to acknowledge that he's a confirmation of what God has promised. That's the whole point of that. You can't follow Jesus solely based upon the New Testament. There is a precedent. There is something that came prior to that. The Old Testament is important, all right? Uh, there was a popular pastor recently, in recent years, he said that we need to unhitch from the Old Testament. I could not disagree more. I got so irritated hearing that, I wanted to say very unchristian things. You know, are you kidding me? What kind of a ridiculous statement is that? I'm a Christian because of the Old Testament. If there were no Old Testament and all we had was the revelation of the New Testament, I wouldn't have any, any point of reference. I wouldn't have any framework to understand who Jesus is. He is the fulfillment of all the prophecies and the promises of the Old Testament. They validate who he is, and he validates the word of God. Paul in Romans 15, 8 says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. By the way, that's us. The circumcised means the Gentiles, that's uh, the non-Jewish world, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Okay, we are not of the patriarchs, we Gentiles. He's referring to the Jews, that's Old Testament era saints. In order, verse 9, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. The Old Testament is confirmed in Christ. You know, we read in Luke 24, after the resurrection of Christ, you had a couple of travelers uh, who are nameless, and they're making their way to the village of Emmaus from Jerusalem. They're, they're walking on the road to Emmaus, and they encounter a third traveler who happens to be the risen Christ, but they don't recognize him. And he kind of falls in, starts walking with them. They're talking about what, what has just transpired back in Jerusalem, this teacher of Nazareth who was put to death and then supposedly was raised, and he engages in conversation. They're like, you haven't heard of this? And so they start talking about it. And as they're talking, it becomes apparent their perspective is incomplete. They don't understand, having not seen any evidence of a resurrection, they don't even understand why that would be necessary because a resurrection would require that someone be put to death. And if this guy was really from God, why would God allow him to be put to death in the first place? They, they had no understanding of that. And Christ, still anonymous to them, rebukes them, and he points out the necessity of the crucifixion. And it says in Luke 24, 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And by the end of that journey, their hearts were burning and they understood. And the Old Testament uh, gives power to the New Testament. And so this is an important and robust introduction. And all of this is true of Christ because as it goes on in verse 14, it says that he is the faithful and true witness. 
And what that means is that not only is he the confirmation of the Old Testament promises, he is, in your notes, the source of New Testament truth. New Testament truth. You see, John 17, 6 says, I, this is Christ, I have manifested your name. Talking about his father. I've manifested your name to the people uh, whom you gave me out of the world. You, uh, yours they were, and you gave them to me, and you have kept your word. Christ manifested the Father. He is the revelation of truth. He is the origin of all New Testament truth. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament, but he is the origin of all the new truth that would come after the Old Testament had been completed. You want to know what God looks like? You look at Jesus. What was unknown to the Jews, what was obscured from their sight, from their knowledge, was revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. He was the Word of God made flesh. You want to know what God looks like? You look at Christ. You want to know what God sounds like? You listen to Christ. What he says about God is true, and what he displays about God through his life is true, And the sacrifice that he made at Calvary was true. And so he's the way, he's the truth, he's the life. And all of that is true of him because, as it goes on in verse 14, he's the beginning of God's creation. We're still just in the introduction, folks. He is the the confirmation of the old. He is the revelation of the new. And he's the beginning of all creation. What does that mean? It does not mean that he was the first thing created. He was not created. He's eternal. This says he's the beginning, and it quite literally means that. He is the beginning. Literally, creation, in your notes, has its origin in him. Has its origin in him. John starts out, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. When? In the beginning. In the beginning. And it goes on in verse 3 of John chapter 1. It says, all things were made through him. See, uh, it's not as though just God the Father, we've been studying Genesis on Sunday morning, it's not as though just God the Father created everything and then eons later in, in uh, the Gospels, along comes Christ. No, Christ was present at creation. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything that was made. Uh, Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Jesus is our creator. And all of this is important to include in this, in this amazing, magnificent introduction because there's a philosophy lesson here. You know, uh, in philosophy, um, we learn that you cannot grasp meaning just by looking at the physical. Uh, there's, a, there's a Christian author by the name of G.K. Chesterton. He said this. He said, the world will never starve. It will never starve for, for want of wonders, plural. It will only starve for want of wonder. Wonder. And that wonder is God. Uh, and what that means is you can take in breathtaking, beautiful, amazing things. You can, you can go to the Grand Canyon and gaze into it. You can go to Yosemite. You can go to the Smokies and marvel at what you see. Uh, but unless you inject God into your perception, it's a very clinical observation. It's a very impersonal, uh, biological assessment and when you consider mankind, if you do so apart from God, 
really, you're, you're just reducing yourself to atoms and rabbits, as it's been said. That you're just nothing but material with a sex drive. That God is what gives us meaning. It's kind of like a house with two stories. The first floor is the physical realm. It's just, it's nature, it's matter, it's material. And you go in and you observe it. And you can weigh it. And you can measure it. And you can, you can analyze it. But then you ascend those stairs and you get to that second floor. And there you find meaning. Because there are the things of God. And only God gives meaning to the physical. The only way to truly understand the world as we see it is to understand that, that we have the word of God to interpret it as a lens through that lens. And now we understand what creation is, why it's here, who it's for, what the problem is with it currently, and where the solution will come from to amend that problem. And so this, this is a, a marvelous introduction. It's really weighty and probably the most magnificent introduction of all the seven letters. And so with these eyes, we can now make sense of what we're about to read. And he moves very quickly from this introduction into his condemnation. No commendation. No attaboys. Just here's what you've done wrong. And he says in verse 15, I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Cold nor hot, rather. Would that you were either cold or hot. So what are they if they're not cold or hot? They're, they're lukewarm. They're tepid, all right? Which is to say they're hot, but they're not that hot. They're cold, but they're not that cold. They're, they're in the middle. What do we call it when someone operates in the middle? We call that mediocrity. Mediocrity, And so in your notes, here's the condemnation. First of all, they've got a mediocre faith. They have a mediocre faith. Of these seven churches, the hot churches are Smyrna, uh, Philadelphia, even Ephesus to a, to a large degree. They, they kind of waned. They got a little cold at the end. They left their first love. But for the most part, pretty hot church, not a bad church overall. Uh, the cold churches, the immoral churches, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, okay? This church is neither. The Latin term for pain, for feeling, is pathos. Pathos or pathos, depending on how you pronounce that. Uh, when you feel, there is pathos. When you don't feel, when you feel nothing about anything, you are apathetic, apathy. That's this church. This church doesn't care. They're not devoted. They're not on fire. They're not enemies of Christ. They would, they would align with him. You know, they approve of him. They like to wear the name tag. They do the things. But they're just in the middle. And Christ says, I would obviously prefer you to be on fire. I would obviously prefer you to, to be vibrant. But, man, I'd rather you be downright heretical than this than what you are. Stop being ambivalent. Pick a side for crying out loud. Um, you know, either, either be Saul or be Paul. Be one of these guys. Don't be this. Don't be lukewarm. Elijah confronted Ahab and his cronies up in the northern kingdom back in the Old Testament in 1 Kings. They were playing both sides. 
You know, as Jews, they liked the idea of having a nation status in the eyes of the Lord, but they, they were dabbling in idolatry. And the prophet Elijah said to them, 1 Kings 18, 21, he said, how long will you go limping between different opinions? He said, if the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, then follow him. Baal was the false god, you know? I mean, if you, you, know, if you, if you consider Yahweh God, then serve him, Okay? If you want to serve Baal, serve Baal and go to hell, your funeral, all right? But choose, choose. Christianity, in the nature of its belief, is a hot or cold religion. There's not room for middle ground. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life, no one comes to the Father but by me, there's no wiggle room there. If Christianity communicates, and it does, The infinite person of God making himself known through the incarnation, deity becoming man for the purpose of redeeming fallen man who are all on the same level. We all are fallen. We all come short of the glory of God. We are sinners in need of a savior. And this God becomes man and goes to the cross after living a perfect life, dies as a substitutionary atonement, a payment for our sin. And we can respond in faith and therefore be redeemed and have eternal life, and he empowers us to live and to serve him forever, if that is the message that is communicated unequivocally by Christianity, and it is, that is a message that you respond to either with great joy or great disdain. There's not to be any lukewarm response to that. That is not by nature how it ought to be. You either fall on your face and say, Thank you, be merciful, O God, on me, a sinner. I love you, I surrender, I give you my life. Or you say, how dare you call me a sinner? Get out of my face with that, I reject this. There's not room for anything in the middle there. You remember the disciple Thomas? What do we call Thomas? Doubting Thomas. We're kind of hard on him, don't you think? Doubting Thomas. Mm. He doubted. He doubted. Listen. He gets credit for one thing, okay? At least he had an honest, reasonable outlook after the crucifixion. What did he say? Unless I see the nail prints in his hands. Unless I see the spear mark in his side. You know? He, he wanted, he, what was his point? What was the motivation behind that? He has to truly be risen. There can be no doubt about this. Okay? This can't just be a rumor. It's got to be true. It's got to be true. I am not going to waste my time following him. I'm not going to waste my time falling in with you guys, you, you, the rest of the 12, if he didn't really rise from the dead. Okay? And he's right about that because a dead savior is not worth following. That is a colossal waste of time. And so when the risen Christ shows up, presents himself to the disciples, to Thomas, and he says, Thomas, come here, son. Put your finger right there. Put your hand right here, you know? He gave him what he was looking for. Now, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. But he gave Thomas what he was looking for. Thomas didn't, he didn't bother putting his finger. He fell down on his face. My Lord, my God, I will follow you. He was cold and then he was hot. That's how it is to be. When, when you come to Christ, you go from being cold to being hot. You don't go from cold and you just slowly warm up. That's not how it's supposed to be. I heard a preacher talking about witnessing to a guy one time, went through the gospel with him, explained it all to him, took his time, very cautious, very careful, 
every jot and tittle he went over, and then he said, does this all make sense to you? And the guy said, yeah, yeah. He goes, do you understand? I do understand. Is it logical? Yeah, yeah, makes perfect sense. He goes, would you like to pray to receive Christ? He goes, nah, I don't think I, I, don't think I would. And the preacher said, okay, all right. Well, I'll tell you what, why don't you and I pray, and you can tell God you hate him, and you reject him, and if there's a hell, you want to go there. Now, I've never tried that approach. I mean, it's a first time for everything. But, but this isn't horseshoes. You don't just get close, all right? Believe and become family with Christ or reject and be an enemy of Christ. Whoever has rejected, Scripture says, his wrath is still on you. Is still on you. He says, I'd rather you be hot or cold. But then he goes on to verse uh, 16. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You say, what does that mean? Let me help you with that. It means he will spit you out of his mouth. All right? Um, That is an undesirable state. You don't want to hear that from Jesus Christ right here. Basically, you make me puke. You make me want to vomit. I mean, if you were hot, that'd be great. If you were cold, that would at least have a sense of intentionality about it. But this, now I love coffee. And I got to, for me, for me, coffee is hot. I am a hot coffee guy. I know some people like their iced coffee, you know, and I, I drink it black, so, you know, uh, I like it hot. Uh, some people are into the cold brew. I am just not. I'm not into that. To me, that's not coffee. Coffee is by definition hot. I'm, this is not a hill to die on. You're not going to go to hell if you disagree with me on that. I'm just saying that's my preference. I've got strong opinions about things that I consume. Uh, you know, wings are never boneless. I'm just telling you. A wing has bones, okay? There's no boneless wings. That's a tender. That's a nugget. A wing has bones, all right? And coffee is hot. But I understand if you like cold coffee, if that's your thing. But it's got to be cold, right? You know what nobody likes? Lukewarm coffee. Nobody likes lukewarm coffee. Have you ever done this? You ever go up to the counter in your home or whatever, and there's a mug there, and you, you pick it up thinking it's fresh, hot coffee, and you put it to your mouth only to discover that sucker's been sitting there all day long. That's disgusting. Blech, right? Spit that right out. Well, Christ is saying, your ambivalence makes me nauseous, and I will eject you from my plan. Uh, Last week, he told Sardis, I'm going to shut the door, and no one will open the door. He told Ephesus, if you don't change your ways. Come back to your first love. I will remove your lampstand. I will take my blessing. Each of these letters bears rebuke. And within each rebuke, except for, of course, Philadelphia and Smyrna, each rebuke has a warning. Do this, turn back, or, and there are consequences. And there's the taking of blessing. Can that happen to churches? Can God just remove his blessing from a church? We've talked about examples of that. Any church, any church can become a parking lot. Any church can become a cobweb, a cobweb-ridden shadow of its former self. And when they do, they will drive unbelievers away. And people will, will come in culturally, and they'll experience a, a falseness. 
a fake brand of Christianity and it will, it will be a bad taste in their mouth and it will turn them off and they will flee and they will never come to saving faith. And this happens time and time and time again. And we need to be mindful of that because this is a witness. It's something we must protect. I've read and I don't, you know, this has been attributed to Gandhi. Gandhi said, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. In other words, he might have become a Christian if he could have ever seen one, a real one, you know? How many people are like that? How many have rejected Christ because of his supposed followers and their activity or inactivity? And so God deserves more than weekend window-dressing Christians. He needs 24-7 diehard believers. That's what he's looking for. And the impetus for this apathy in Laodicea, we see the reason in verse 17. He says, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. And what this is in your notes is that they believe they're self-sufficient. They believe they're self-sufficient. They don't need anything from the Lord. They're comfortable. They're, they're satisfied. They're content. And what has wrought that in them is material success. It can bring a sense of independence. And independence can make one cold toward the Lord. And this community, the Laodicean community, because of the gold, because of the fabric industry, because of their, their, their ISAV and their medicinal products, they become this affluent community. And they're very wealthy. And that caused a coldness to creep in. Now, Pastor Scott, do you think that wealth is bad? No, of course not. Of course not. But it presents challenges. What does Scripture say? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, right? Now, that, there's a little bit of uh, uh, colorful language there to, to emphasize the challenges that accompany wealth. That if you're not careful, if you're not intentional... You will grow cold. Your heart will become bitter toward the Lord. It will become jaded. It will become hardened. And so I've seen countless times people go through abject poverty and trial and difficulty, and they, they draw close to the Lord. And I've seen people who have become incredibly prosperous that have grown cold to the Lord. And so they're, absolutely, there are wonderful, godly people that are, that are blessed, that are wealthy, but they are very intentional. They're very aware of their relationship with the Lord and who it is that has blessed them. And they keep that on top of their mind. But Solomon was aware of the danger. I mean, when did he begin to fall? He, he began to fall away whenever he was uh, ensconced with power. But here's what Solomon prayed, Proverbs 30, verse 7. He says, two things I ask of you. This is a desperate man here. He said, deny them not to me before I die. He says, remove far from me falsehood and lying. You know, the world is just a, a maze of bad decisions. He'd tasted it all. He'd been, he'd been obliterated personally by it all. And he prays specifically, he says, give me neither poverty nor riches. You ever pray that? God, take away the money. You ever pray that? I doubt it. I doubt it. God, don't make me rich, but don't make me poor either, you know? But protect me from being rich, he prays. Not because money is evil, but because of the pitfalls associated with it that he'd already given into, if you read Ecclesiastes. He says, feed me with the food that is needful for me. You might say, give me our 
give me, give us this day our daily bread, our daily bread. Give us, give us enough. Meet our needs. He's, he's saying, lest I be full and deny you. Wow. That's a guy who came to grips with what his truest need was. He says, and say, who is the Lord? You know, if I get too wealthy, his concern, Solomon, Solomon, one of the richest people who ever lived, one of the most powerful people, but he became the wisest. He said, I don't want this if it makes me feel that I don't need you. Wow. God, if I have too much, I run the risk of concluding that I'm enough. I'm enough. You hear that today? You are enough. No, you ain't. <laughs> nope. Nope. And the best way to stay hungry for God is to know need. And Solomon knew that. But he goes on, he says, lest I be poor and steal. He's saying, hey, don't plunge me into poverty either. You know, meet my needs. I don't want to be tempted to be unethical and bring dishonor to your name. He said, profane the name of my God. In other words, meet my needs, but... Draw me close to you. I want to concentrate on you. I don't want distraction. And uh, this is the lesson that we're learning from Laodicea. Uh, you know, God tells the Israelites as they wander in the wilderness, they're about to enter the promised land. He says, you're going to come to this land. There's going to be milk and honey. There's going to be, uh, man, there's going to be water. There's going to be springs. There's going to be brooks. There's going to be fountains. There's going to be valleys and hills and wheat and barley and vines and figs and pomegranates and, and bread with no scarcity whatsoever. You're going to lack nothing. And after he tells them all this, he says this in Deuteronomy 8.10. He says, and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. So make sure you know, as you enjoy all this, you keep him on top of your mind. You recognize who it is that's blessed you. You thank God every day for what you have, and don't you dare say, I did that. No. He did it. And don't you forget it. And in verse 14 of Deuteronomy 8, it says, Then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God. God forbid we forget. He says in verse 17, Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power, my power, and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Oh, did it now. Did it now. You shall remember the Lord your God. It is he who gives you power to get wealth the power to get wealth. Not just, he didn't just give you the wealth, he gave you the ability to acquire the wealth. You thank him for everything. See, all that you have, all that you are, is because of him. This church has forgotten that. This church has forgotten that. And here's, despite all of their puffery, all of their inflated ego, all of their material perceptions, Here's how God sees this church. Look at verse 17. It goes on. It says, not realizing you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. That's how God saw them. For all their wealth, for all their possessions, for all their resources, they were, they were in abject poverty as far as God was concerned. They were absolute urchins, you see. And I submit to you that this Laodicean church was cold not merely because of self-sufficiency. I think that they were cold because the culture around them was cold. The unbelieving around them had this outlook of self-sufficiency. And what followed was an osmosis of the Laodicean culture into the Laodicean church. Can that happen? Can the world seep into the church? 
Does that happen? No. Say it ain't so. Oh my goodness, happens all the time. Does the church take the world's ideas about science and philosophy and sexuality and gender and ethics and family and government? Mm. Every movement that comes along, the church adopts it. We, we want to be relevant, you see. And so what is this saying? It says in, in your notes that they merely reflect the culture. They merely reflect the culture. There's too much of this going on, folks. Why? Notice, notice, nobody's really worried out in the world. Nobody is worried that the church is going to start to transform the world and make them like the church. They're not afraid of that. What do we see happening? The opposite. We see, we see the world infiltrating the church, and the church is becoming more and more and more like the world. I used to be a youth pastor, and we did this thing commonly. We, we would, uh, in front of a group of students, we'd put a chair in the, up against the wall. We'd put a kid on the chair, standing on top of the chair. Another kid would come along, grab their hand, and they'd try to pull each other, and the, the kid on the chair would try to pull the other kid up onto the chair. It never happened. The kid on the chair always came down off the chair. And we use that to illustrate that this is how the world is. We, the church, are to be in the world, not of the world. Whenever we engage with the world, start to practice the things of the world, even if we're trying to relate, be relevant, use it as a means of establishing a relationship, it never accomplishes that purpose. We just end up becoming like them. And what we see here, I think, is a state of being spiritually cocky on the part of this church because this church wants the favor of the world. They want to be liked. They're enjoying uh, the kind words of the world. They like to be affirmed. They like to be appreciated. They like the accolades of the world. And it's, it's kind of like how a wealthy person can attribute their wealth to their own ability and talent and forget God. Now we got a church that experiences favor in society and they start to lose sight of what matters most to God. And now we see the Lord's correction because of this condemnation. He moves on to verse 18. He says, I counsel you to buy gold from me. Buy gold from me. He says, refined by fire so that you may be rich. And so what this is in your notes, he's advocating for a different value system. You need a different value system. What was Laodicea proud of? Their gold. He says, you, you think that's special, that gold? No, no. You, you need to get your gold from me. I've got the gold that you're looking for. I know you're a commercial capital, but I've got real wealth waiting for you. Matthew 6, 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. He says in verse 33 of that chapter, seek first the kingdom. And yet that's, that's often way down the list of the things that we seek. We gotta seek things that matter to God. We, we got to invest in eternal things. Uh, but the industry of gold was their focus. What was the second industry I told you about? Garments, right? 
They made cloth. They made wool for clothing, you see. Look what he says. Don't, don't only buy gold from me, but he says also white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. White garments. And what is this? In your notes, this is, this is a different righteousness. You need a different righteousness. You need a different brand of what it is to be worthy. A different righteousness. Uh, Revelation 19 gives us the right imagery here. Verse 7, it says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Who is this bride? It's the church. It's the church collective. That's the church. And after this letter to Laodicea, you don't see in the book of Revelation the word church again until the end when the church comes back with Christ. And what that means is that he's going to take the church out of the world. This is the last vestiges of the church on the earth until we are raptured and then he returns with us at the end of the tribulation. But after he takes us, there will be a wedding. There will be a marriage feast where the groom, Jesus Christ, will be united with his glorious bride, the church. And how will she be adorned? In verse 8, it says, It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. You remember when we talked about the judgment seat of Christ and there will be rewards that will be granted based on what we do in this life in the body? Not just every good deed is going to be rewarded. It's going to be based on your motivation for that deed. It's going to be based on your reason for doing it. Did you do it out of love for Christ? Did you do it out of obedience for Christ? Or did you do it for the favor of man? And fire will reveal. And so your, your white garment will be the righteous deeds of the saints, that which is righteous in the sight of God. And so what you do does not have to be impressive to man. It just needs to be impressive to God. The good deeds that are going to be honored by the Lord are not the deeds of a famous pastor. They're not the deeds of a Christian radio star. They're not the deeds of some household name, okay? Some megachurch personality. Righteous deeds are anything done for the glory of God, not the glory of man. Are you living for your glory or for his glory? This church has asked that question. And you don't want the shame of your nakedness to be revealed because in that day your self-sufficiency will be exposed for what it is, pure inadequacy. You know, what the, you know what Laodicea means? You know what that name means? It means the people rule. The people rule. Christ is on the outside. They're on the inside. He wants in. But they're so sufficient, they don't see a need. They're like, no, we're good. No, we don't need any. We're good. And he goes on. Remember the other industry we talked about? They're known for their gold. They're known for their garments. They're known for their eye salve. Remember for the eye ailment? Look what he says in verse 19. He says, and salve, you need my salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. What do they need? In your notes, they need a different perspective. They need new eyes. You know, Laodicea was proud of this medicinal achievement, this eye salve uh, to heal eye ailment. Jesus says, you got a spiritual eye ailment. You got spiritual pink eye, buddy. You need my salve. You got to have new vision. You need to see with my eyes. In Luke 11, 34 says, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body's full of light. But when it's bad, your body's full of darkness. 
Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. And if your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. If you can see well, you can live well. We need a a divine perspective. If If you operate in the dark, if you are blind, if you can't see, living presents challenges to you. You can't find your way. You need the perspective of Christ. And that means you value the things that he values. You spend your time in his word. You don't get distracted by things that contribute to your blindness. And he closes here with some encouragement. I, I would say we need a little encouragement after a letter like this. But the Lord encourages them amazingly. And in verse 19 he says, Those whom I love I reprove and I discipline. So be zealous and repent. See, there are those that he loved. He would not say these things if he did not love them. And so what this means in your notes is that love is his reason for rebuke. Love is the reason for rebuke. Did your parents ever say something along those lines when you were growing up? When they would discipline you? When they'd punish you? My house was a spanking house. All right? I got whooped. Okay? Mom and dad, big believers in corporal punishment. Uh, we practice that today, you know, always on the seat, never anywhere else, all right? Um, what does Scripture say? S- you sp- he who spares the rod, uh-uh, not spoils the child, that's a, that's a, that we made up that part. The Bible says, he who spares the rod hates his son. That's right. If you don't discipline, you don't love your child, all right? God disciplines those whom he loves. He chastens those whom he loves. You don't show love to your kid by letting them do whatever they want. Their happiness is not your primary objective. Okay? Their spiritual well-being is your primary objective. You raise up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And Christ operates that way. God operates that way. It's for our benefit. This is why in that classic Charles Dickens story, A Christmas Carol, uh, Ebenezer Scrooge, who is this self-sufficient guy, self-sufficient guy, he's a miser. He's got all this money. He's rich. He, he's got it all figured out. Nobody can tell him anything. What does he need? He needs reproof. And it comes in the form of the spirit of his dead partner, Marley. And he appears to Scrooge one night, dragging a big old heavy chain. He says, oh, Ebenezer, you think this hideous chain is a sight to behold, this chain that I made, I procured for myself in this life. You think it's hideous? You just wait and see the chain you're making with your life. And the end result of that story is Scrooge turning his life around. See, the rebuke is intended to set a a new course, to change somebody's ways. I think of that movie Top Gun. This is what Tom Cruise needed when that old bald XO gets in his face. He says, son, your ego's writing checks your body can't cash. You know, he needed that. This is what that football team in Remember the Titans needed when Denzel gets up in their grill and says, you think you're tough? You're more like a bunch of fifth grade sissies after a cat fight. He says, you come to me, you're going to go to work. You drop a pass, you run a mile. You miss a block on assignment, you run a mile. You fumble the football, I will break off my foot in your John Brown hind parts. 
and then you will run a mile. Right? It's for their benefit. Why would a character say that to a bunch of young people? Because they need it. They need it. Years ago, decades ago, at Dallas Theological Seminary, there was a legendary professor named Howard Hendricks, and he was known uh, to really crack the whip, but he was a great mentor toward a lot of guys uh, who, who went on to do great things in ministry. And there was a young man years ago in his class that really didn't give a hoot. Uh, he came in late every class. Uh, he was a basketball player. He would be out playing a pickup game. He'd just kind of waltz into class, sit at the back, doze off, not really try, not really pay attention. Dr. Hendricks called him to the front after class one time. He said, young man, why don't you go home? Go back to Ohio. This young man had only gotten in there because his dad was the president of a Christian college up in Ohio. He said, you're only here because of your daddy. You know, we got 10 other guys that would love to be here, but they're not here because you're here. We chose you instead. Why don't you scram and give somebody else a shot because you're wasting your time, you're wasting my time, you're wasting the seminary's time. Otherwise, apply yourself, young man. And that student took it to heart. He took that rebuke to heart. And he began to apply himself. And he began to study. And he began to immerse himself in Scripture. And he began to get very, very close to God. And his heart caught fire for ministry. And he prepared. And he worked hard. And he became a pastor. And he ended up pastoring a magnificent church with a tremendous legacy. And he's still there as of this moment. And he's in San Diego, California at Shadow Mountain Community Church. And his name is Dr. David Jeremiah. Amen. The Lord chastens those whom he loves. And it's for the purpose of our benefit. And then he goes on here and he says in verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock... Why is he knocking? Because there's a distance between them. He's on the outside. You've seen that famous painting of Christ knocking on a door? And there's no doorknob on the door. And people saw the painting and they criticized the artist. They said, he forgot to put a doorknob on the door. And the artist said, no, it didn't. It's on the inside. It's on the inside. Because those on the inside have to make the decision to open that door. But Christ is calling. He's knocking. He says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And what this tells us in your notes is that fellowship is the result of our responsiveness. He is knocking. And he says, if you open, if anyone will open. Don't tell me we don't have a will. We do. He says, if anyone will open. If then, I will when Christ says, I will, that's a promise. You do this, I will do this. I will come in and eat with him. And what this means is that fellowship is the result of our responsiveness. He wants fellowship with us. And so respond to the Lord. Have a sensitive heart to the Lord. If you sense the Lord is calling you to something, respond. There, there are moments that I look back on that I sensed I was, I was being prompted by the Spirit to do something, and I didn't do it. And the moment passed. You know, Let us not let those pass. Respond to the Lord. And then he gives this promise, verse 21, the one who conquers, who is that? The one who conquers is the one who has believed in Christ. The one who conquers in every church, no matter how lukewarm, no matter how dead, no matter how cold, every church has got some believers. And this is no exception. 
He says, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. And this tells us in your notes that the righteous will reign with him. You know that? One day you're going to reign. Did you know that? Did you know your royalty in waiting? That's right. He says, you invite me in, I'll sit down with you, and someday you will rule with me. There is a kingdom coming. There is a place for you to rule with Christ. When he returns, we will return with him, and it will be to establish his glorious kingdom. Romans 8.18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present life, this is what you need to remember tomorrow, when you're plugging away at that job that wears you out, when you're dealing with that person who just just a burr under your saddle. When you're dealing with the hardships of life, right? When you're paying those bills, whatever you're contending with, uh, things much darker and nefarious than that, physical ailments and such, you remember this. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And this is how people know Christians from the fake, is that no matter what we encounter, Even though we're human, there's still a joy that we have access to because of the knowledge of our coming status in the kingdom, that there is a glory that awaits that this doesn't even touch. And what we're going through will be blown out like a candle. What stage of church history is Laodicea? Each of these churches represents a different era. You know, Ephesus was that first century church, apostolic church, that slowly began to wane. You know, uh, we looked at Smyrna. Smyrna was the next century and following when the church was under heavy persecution by the Roman Empire. And they tried to snuff them out and they couldn't do it. It only thrived. It only grew until finally the emperor of Rome said, well, if you can't beat them, join them. And so all of Rome, he decreed, would be Christian. And then we look at the church that signifies that era, which was Pergamum, uh, the state church that became compromised, that allowed idolatrous ways into its practices. And then we looked at the next church, Thyatira, the corrupted church that represents the medieval church that had become so overwhelmed by hypocrisy and unethical things and nepotism and, and adultery and such. And it just became darker and darker and darker and more corrupt until finally it jumped the tracks and the Reformation happened. And, and there was a necessary breaking away. But even over, over time, you saw Protestant churches as well as the Catholic churches just become basically museums. And that was signified by Sardis, the dead church. And then last week we saw Philadelphia, which really represents the era after that post-Reformation time when the Great Commission would go out and churches became evangelistic and the gospel came across the ocean. It landed in the West and it took hold and there was revival and spiritual awakening and then the gospel went out from the West and it went around the world and it reached all of these different countries around the world. And now it's the 20th century and we've lost our fire. And we've become complacent. And we've settled in. And we've gotten comfortable. And we've gotten fat and happy. And we like our culture. And truth be told, our culture really isn't that different from the world's culture. And I'm speaking of the church globally. Yes, there are some solid Bible teaching churches here and there. But on the whole, we 
this era of Christian, uh, Christianity is represented by this lukewarm church. And we need revival. And you'll notice there are no more churches. This is the last one that Christ wrote to, which means it is indicative of the final age. How close are we to the end? We don't know. The sand is petering out of that hourglass. We don't know how much time we have left. But I do believe, as long as there's still sand in that hourglass, there's still time for revival. There's still time for a spiritual awakening. He's done it before. He can do it again. Wouldn't it be great if it would start right here? Make it so, Lord. If it were not possible, I don't think he would end with this statement in verse 22. He who has an ear, let him hear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's hear, and let's pray that churches around the world will hear from the Spirit on this matter and that the fire will rise up again. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for powerful word from Revelation. But God, if it doesn't make a difference, we've just been reading for pleasure. And so I ask your blessing upon this church in particular, God, because this is the flock that I'm responsible for. These are the people I know. These are the people under the care of this ministry. God, help us to be a disciple-making church. Help us to not be a place where people just come to have fun, where people just come to be seen, where people just come just because that's what you do in Burlington on the weekend. Lord, may this be a place where we are equipped, where we are prepared, where we learn to grow up and we go out, we are sent, and we make a difference because that's why we're here. When you saved us, you didn't just rapture us up to glory. We're here for a reason. And I pray we'd be good stewards of the time and the resources that we have, that we might make an impact as you have designed for us to do. And we pray this as your church, your church, in Jesus' name, amen.